everybody and welcome to a new episode of Evie's Korean Drama Podcast Show. My name is Evie, I'm your host, and I am a K-drama obsessive. So this is the show where I waffle on about all of the K-drama that I love. If you'd like to support the show, you can check out my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Evie Korean Drama Podcast. There you will find extra podcast episodes and updates on what I'm watching at the moment. Also, just before I get started, please be warned that I do swear a little bit on this show when I get excited. And when I'm talking about K-drama, I always get excited. Alright, so I thank you very, very much for listening and let's get on with the K-drama show. everybody and welcome to episode 97 of the Lee Evie Korean Drama Podcast Show. I hope wherever you are around the world you're doing well. Um, I'm doing well except that the drama that I'm going to talk about today, oh I was about to say it's a super downer. Um, downer is not the right word. It's pretty heavy. It's really heavy. I feel really sad. I just finished watching it last night. Um, but I'm so glad I watched it and I wouldn't want to say it was a depressing drama. The end was very sad. So sad. But on the whole, the drama isn't depressing. Um, so I guess I should back up a bit. <laughs> um, so the drama that I'm going to be chatting about with you guys today is Youth of May. So Youth of May is a 12-episode K-drama, I want to say melodrama romance, but it is a historical. It's set in 1980 and it deals with some extremely tragic shit from that period in Korean history. That is like crazy distressing to learn about. Um, and I'm very glad that I have learned about it a little bit through watching this show. Um, so this one's only 12 episodes. It's from 2021. If I didn't say that, I can't remember already. So it's very new. Um, and yeah, I just finished watching it last night. I feel like I'm still reeling a little bit because it, it is, oh, at the end, it's such a, I want to say intense, watch, but I feel like when I did my Noctu flower <laughs> uh, little overview, I, I think I said the word intense like 50 billion times. So my whole thing for this drama, <laughs> which is frankly kind of in the same wheelhouse in some ways, uh, was that I have to attempt not to say the word intense to describe this show <laughs> as many times as I did last time. So, you know, we'll see how I grow. And now I've pointed it out. It'll probably be really hard for me to do. Uh, so anyway, um, yeah, this show, um, why I watched it, Youth of May, why did I watch it? Actually, I was super excited about this show from the second that I heard about the casting and heard about the content. I, you know, uh, it's no secret, anyone who's been listening to the show knows that I'm very interested in history in general. I think that my kind of passion for history tends to run towards like more, you know, further back historical events, like particularly, you know, ancient or medieval kind of stuff, more so than modern recent history. Um, but I, you know, through, I guess, learning a lot about um, different periods of history and Korean history, it just 
it has got me more and more interested in particularly how all these things fit together in the scheme of, you know, their history. And I know a lot less about Korean modern history than I do about, you know, Joseon and stuff like that. And it's a gap that I really quite want to fill in, I suppose. And I also think it's really interesting because, you know, there are so many K-dramas set you know, during the Joseon period in Korea. And there's a lot of dramas set even earlier than that. But modern history, less so. Um, there's quite a few, not heaps and heaps, but there's a few obviously set during the Japanese occupation period. Um, but then after that, you know, I guess I'm thinking 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. There is, a, you know, there's just a lot less, um, which I don't know. I can only imagine that perhaps that's because, you know, those periods of history, which you know, again, are really tumultuous, are filled with a lot of tragedy and a lot of really, really awful shit. Uh, I think it would be quite sensitive maybe because it still is kind of living memory for a lot of people that are alive or for their parents or their grandparents. Um, and I know that that, you know, the closer you are to these things um, in terms of generations later, it's a lot more sensitive and therefore it's a, it's a much more difficult topic to, I think, particularly fictionalize. And then when you are going to fictionalize something that's true, there is that element of having to create a fictional, I guess, product or story that I feel like matches <laughs> the gravity of the real event, I suppose. Um, yeah, so for instance, you know, we there's a lot of Joseon dramas that come out that deal with maybe, you know, really tragic things that happened in history. But, you know, you can have a fusion sagok that completely twists things on its head or completely changes things or has a really happy outcome instead of a tragic one. And we're talking about things from hundreds of years ago. So generally, I think that that's, you know, that's pretty okay. Unless maybe it's touching on the Imjin War, which I feel is a little bit different and still a bit sensitive. Uh, you know, I'm fair enough. Um, but I think all this recent history, like particularly, you know, this drama, which deals with, uh, it's not, I wanted to say student uprising, but I don't think that that's really the correct <laughs> word. It's kind of known as, I think, the Gwangju uprising, which happened in May 1980 in the city down south in South Korea called Gwangju. Um, but really, it's about young people and then an entire town protesting against, I guess, martial law and a dictatorship government and all sorts of very, very scary things like young people getting arrested and disappearing off the face of the earth, like really frightening times. Um, and I think because this piece of history is so heavy and dark and wasn't long ago, I mean, 1980 is like the drama says, so as I record this, 41 years ago, there are people that lived through that, uh, whose parents lived through that. I mean, yeah, so I guess I can see why, I guess what I'm trying to say <laughs> in a really waffly roundabout way is that I can see why this drama chose 
the tone that it did um you know the first half or the first three quarters even I want to say is very much so a romance mellow like I think it sets the scene with this sort of heavy saturated tragic kind of feel to the story even though the events being explored for you know the, the start of the drama are very much more around romance and you know family responsibility and family pressure and restrictions and and, you know, tangled love lines and, you know, some kind of, you know, mellow stuff where some of the tangled love lines might be a little bit that they did that to themselves. But anyway, I'll talk to about that later. That's my, my personal thoughts. Um, but the second half of the drama is dealing very closely, you know, event after event with something that really did happen. And I think the drama makes this really intense, I want to say the word intense, choice for its ending, which was extremely painful for me to watch and made me freaking blubber like a bloody baby. It was so fucking sad, but also I do feel like I understand you know, the drama's choice to end their story that way because I feel like, I do feel like in a way it pays homage to to this real event but particularly to the victims of the event and the family members of victims of that event and I can see why that I don't know it felt like the right choice to me even though it really really hurts <laughs> to watch this ending it's just oh it's so sad all right, so uh, that was my really long-winded way of saying why I watched this. Why I watched it, what I was trying to say just then is that I was interested in the history. As soon as I saw that there was going to be a K-drama coming out dealing with something I didn't know about or didn't know much about, I'd heard about it and read a tiny bit, but I really didn't know much at all, um, and just dealing with such recent history um, in in Korea, which I think there's, you know, that's just unusual. I don't see dramas popping up very often that deal with this kind of time period. Um, so I was interested straight away. The second thing that got me interested immediately in this K-drama was indeed the casting, which is really good. And I was super, super excited for uh, so the main male lead in this drama is the actor Ido Han. So Ido Han is like, I want to say up and coming because I mean, I suppose he hasn't had like a super huge amount of lead roles. I think this is probably his second full lead role, I think. And that's it. Um, but he's amazing. I remember um, I saw him as not even a second male lead, like a fourth or fifth male lead, but basically like a friend of the second male lead in um, an older drama called, I never remember what this drama is fucking called. I always bring it up. <laughs> it's like 13 going on 30. I don't know. Suddenly 30. I don't know. I feel like those are American movie titles and completely different things. Anyway, um, it's about a woman that goes into a coma and then wakes up and she realizes she's 30, but she still feels like she's 17. And it's a brilliant drama that I really thoroughly enjoyed. Anyway, he's in that. Um, but I really started noticing the actor Ido Han when he played the second male lead in Hotel de Luna. Uh, he just was such a standout for me personally in that drama. Um, he's not in it a whole heap, but I kind of feel like he was just because I feel like he was emotionally such a big hook and part of the story. So, and I thought he was just 
very, very charming in that drama and a real scene stealer, um, which is saying a lot when you're in a drama with IU being as incredible as she is in that show. Oh, I really love Hotel de Luna. Um, so anyway, uh, Idohyun I then saw in Sweet Home, uh, which is a wonderful kind of horror K-drama um, that's more of an ensemble cast. Uh, he's also in a remake of the Zac Efron American movie called Seventeen Again, which I think is called, maybe it's called something like Eighteen Again, the K-drama. I haven't seen that one, but I do really love Ido Hun, so who knows? Maybe I will. Um, and then, is that it? Yeah, then, then he's in this. <laughs> <laughs> that's also what he's in. Uh, so I love him and I was really excited to see that he, you know, he's getting these lead roles now and I'm interested in maybe the kind of, you know, in, in picking this drama as well. Um, so the female lead is played by the actress Go Min Shi, who is also a bit of an up and comer, but I think getting very, very noticeable. Um, so... I kind of couldn't believe her in this role just because, you know, she sinks into it. She's so good um, and she's very believable. But it's so weird coming from the last drama that I saw Go Min Shi in was Love Alarm Season 2, in which she plays, you know, the wonderful Kim So Hyun, my favorite actresses, uh, random, I think, like stepsister who is just, frankly, a screechy, horrible brat for the entirety of that entire drama. Like, I hated her in it. I didn't hate her. She's, you know, she's beautiful and lovely, but, like, ugh, what a character. Um, so it was interesting seeing Go Min Shi in this playing such a... I don't know. Like, I want to say soft character, but a soft character with a spine of steel. Like, someone who's softly spoken, who does the things she's asked, who works so hard and wants to help people and always kind of puts herself out to help others. But, you know, she's not a pushover. That's not what's going on with her. She is such a strong character. Um, and I think I'm always fascinated by that kind of storytelling around a character when they are both, you know, really strong and also but very like soft and quiet and reserved and constrained. I just think that's such an interesting like combination, I suppose. Um, and I think such a hard thing to sort of flesh out and get across in a story. But I think they do really well in this with her character. I really loved her. Uh, Go Min Shi is also in Sweet Home, which is the kind of ensemble horror drama. Um, I've got an episode on that one and I loved it. It's so good. And that one also has Ido Han in it. And in that drama, Ido Han and Go Min she play brother and sister and in this drama they don't <laughs> they play lovers and they're both very very good in this um so I guess casting wise I'll also quickly mention the kind of the second male lead and second female lead so the second male lead is played by an actor called Lee Sung Yi uh Lee Sung Yi is new to me he's not a face I recognized um this would be my first Lee Sung Yi drama but I did kind of look at his list of other stuff he's done and he's done quite a bit but it's all dramas that I haven't watched personally um so I'm not familiar with him but I really really liked him in this um I thought particularly he had a couple scenes that really struck me hard um, and I thought I don't know just were very very emotional and really kind of like got beneath my skin so I really liked him in this he plays a very sort of warm caring character but he some of the conflicts I think that he goes through are very interesting to me in this show and then the second female lead is uh 
his sister, the second male lead sister, but not the actor's sister. No, not the actor. I meant the character's sister. <laughs> Am I explaining this well? <laughs> anyway, uh, so the second female lead is played by an actress called Gum Serok. Uh, Gum Serok, I did recognize. No. No, I didn't recognize. Um, I have never seen her in something. <laughs> I was like, have I? No, I haven't. Um, but I did see that she was meant to be in the K-drama Joseon Exorcist, which was meant to come out earlier this year in 2021, as I record this, and did not come out. I was so excited for that drama. It looked so good. So if it had come out, I would have been familiar with her, but it didn't. So I'm not. Um, so <laughs> moving on, there are other people in this drama. Of course, there are lots of familiar faces, as always, particularly around those dads and those mums. Gosh, they just cycle in those dads and mums into every single drama I've ever seen in my life. Uh, I won't go through all those recognizable faces, but if you watch it, you'll recognize them all because they're in fucking everything. It's amazing. And, you know, all very likable and very good at what they do. Um, so before I get on to the setup and tell you a bit about the story, um, should you watch this drama? Yeah, I really think so. I think it's worth your time. It's only 12 episodes, so it's actually pretty short. And I think the runtime for me was a really good thing. Um, I really, really liked this drama a lot. Uh, but I did, I kind of got to this point um, with the kind of the start or the first half or so, which is, you know, the mellow, the romance kind of stuff, which I love mellow romance. I'm so into that whole kind of vibe. I think that's really good. But there was this point where some of like, it was just getting to the point where I felt like some of the problems the characters were sort of experiencing was sort of their own fault. And I think that's where I draw the line with mellow. Um, I think I really love it, particularly when it comes to like romance or romantic mellows. But I think where I draw the line is when people are sort of creating their own <laughs> sort of mellow problems. I like obviously it all gets out of hand, it gets out of control. And by that point, you know, it's too late. They can't really solve things and it is not their fault. But at the same time, I do feel <laughs> like these characters could have done a better job of not doing the things that they did <laughs> that caused them all these problems. But anyway, that's just my, my little personal reaction. And what I'm trying to say by telling you that is that there was a point where I felt things were getting quite tangled and I was like what what's come on what's happening and then it was like immediately after I had this thought in my head of like oh this is kind of spinning a little bit too much for me the drama just like surged onwards and got straight into like I guess you know the next phase of the show which is dealing with the history and the politics and this really dark shit that happened in Guangzhou and the lead up to it and you know, and then I guess like all the little kind of petty problems that had been such a focus, just, you know, they, they're not such a big deal anymore because there are really important things going on and much more life-threatening things happening to all our main characters. So I guess what I'm saying is I felt like the pacing was actually really good. I feel like there was a point where it was about to kind of spin its wheels for me, but then I feel like it just sidestepped and it did such a good job of... Um, yeah, just pacing wise, just rolling onwards and keeping me thoroughly engaged the whole time. 
Um, and I do think that that is probably because of that 12 episode runtime. Um, I feel like if it had been 16, then I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how I would have done with that if they'd sort of added in a bit more like, I don't know, crazy stuff in the middle to fill out the space before you know, the Guangzhou sort of uprising stuff happened. Anyway, I feel like I'm rambling, but what I'm trying to say is, yes, you should watch it. It's really good. Um, it's, I want to say it's not an easy watch. It's an interesting thing because, um, you know, obviously I did a, an episode very recently on the Korean drama Knock Do Flower, which again, just deals with true history in this very kind of distressing way. But Knock Do Flower is heavy, at times, I feel like consistently the whole drama through, it deals with these really heavy, dark themes and ideas and terrible events the whole way through the drama. Um, was this one, it's not as heavy simply because it saves all that shit for the very end. And when you get to the end, it's bonkers dark and bonkers heavy but it's not suffocating because it doesn't have that same vibe or tone the whole way through in fact there's moments of it that are quite light beautiful very romantic and very satisfying around you know mellow romance and that kind of you know genre I suppose um so I guess what I'm trying to say is don't let this drama's darkness stop you from giving it a go, I think. I think that even if that, you know, being told that there's tragedy there is a little bit frightening to you, which, you know, I get. <laughs> Sometimes I'm not in the mood for a tragedy at all. Um, but I think this one's worth your time, not just to gain a deeper understanding of these times, which I think this drama, particularly with the way they do the end, it does so well in making you feel what that might be like for the people, I want to say, left behind mainly, um, which I thought was just done incredibly and just oh, so, oh, just really well done. Um, but yeah, it's, it's worth your time. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Uh, all right, I think I, I've waffled on enough my little opening section and um, lost my <laughs> what I'm trying to say. So I'm going to quickly move on before anyone notices that I'm talking in circles. So I'm going to try and tell you guys a little bit about the setup and what this show is about. Okay. So Youth of May, I guess to start with, uh, which I hope this is okay, <laughs> but I just want to tell you guys just a tiny bit of what it was like, I guess, or what I've learned that it's like so you can understand the setting of the drama if you haven't watched it of course um, but I found it was really helpful just to have a little bit of a deeper understanding of why things were the way that they were so the drama is set in Guangzhou which is a city in and I never can say this right but I think Jola Jola province which is down south in South Korea um, apparently typically it's a very like very rich in natural resources kind of a, a region so therefore you know 
I guess when a government is a bit more authoritarian or dictatory, um, it tends to get squeezed a little bit more than some other areas. Um, so apparently, like, you know, throughout history, there's been a lot of sort of people uprisings in that area. Um, the same province is where the Donghak, uh, you know, people's uprising happened as well, the peasant uprising back in the late 1800s in Korea. But anyway, that's not what this is about. <laughs> So basically, um, there, I think it was something like, like 18 years or something up until 1979 in Korea, the country had been led by a president who was basically a dictator. So this president was, you know, he had full authoritarian rule. And during this period, we've seen it in some dramas, or I have seen it in some dramas set in the seventies, you know, we're talking, um, what's you know, like curfews, curfews, you got to be home after this day, a day, you know, like if it's nighttime, you can't be outside. Um, a lot of things like professors who are speaking out against authoritarian rule or teaching progressive ideas or have progressive ideology or just not, you know, far right leaning conservative, uh, conservative sort of ideology getting arrested, getting disappeared, um, really scary stuff like that. Um, so you can kind of see that stuff in a lot of dramas. Um, one that just springs to mind that most people have seen is the, the K-drama Healer. It has this kind of like past section where you see these students with this like pirate radio and they're trying to, you know, kind of, I don't know, encourage people to rise up against it. And they're getting chased by the police and the military. And it's all very, very scary and very dark. Um, so that's kind of you know, up until the 70s. And in 1979, this authoritarian president, um, he got uh, assassinated. So when he got assassinated, uh, this, you know, was a bit unexpected for everybody. So there wasn't, you know, someone who kind of stepped up into that, you know, power vacuum or whatever. Um, so there was this period of sort of unrest uh, where things were very unstable. And so there was a general, a Korean general in the military who had been, you know, in, in the military for a really long time and had all these, had been strengthening his position, I suppose. Um, kind of started moving in on this um, with military. But realistically, you know, he he wasn't in politics. He wasn't on that side of the fence. He was military. And the military can't really get involved in those kind of civilian politics stuff. So a martial law was put out to because there was unrest, you know, after this assassination. Um, and realistically, I guess this this general guy was was using this as an opportunity to try and take over the country. And that's why, you know, as this drama opens in 1980, we're hearing that there's, you know, there's this threat of martial law. There's these students everywhere who are protesting in the streets, protesting at their universities. And of course, universities have always been sort of a gathering place for progressive ideas and, you know, just education and learning and pushback against, you know, I guess governments that have that kind of control. Um, so apparently, you know, during the, the president's term before he got assassinated, um, uh, you know, 
I guess all these professors were getting arrested or they were getting fired from their jobs at university and all the students that were involved in any uprising activities were also kicked out. So once he was gone, all that stuff kind of fell to the wayside and all these same students who were very politically active started coming back to the university. So that's why it was a really kind of a hotbed for all these protests. And they wanted things like human rights, minimum wage demands, freedom of press, and they wanted a democracy. So that's really how this drama started. Starts. It starts with these massive student protests everywhere we go because the drama really opens in Seoul, but we see that it's happening in Seoul and it's also happening, you know, down south in Gwangju and we hear during the drama that it's happening everywhere. Oh my gosh, I'm really sorry. I opened with like mad history stuff, but I hope that that was helpful and interesting in terms of the story of the drama and not just really boring and you're like, why isn't she talking about the show? Sorry guys, I'm going to talk about the show now. <laughs> um, so the show opens with uh, the actor Lee Do-hyun. I actually don't remember how it opens, um, but I just chose to start here. But actually what I should do, there was this really interesting framework to the show that I loved, but also very fucking ominous. Like, you know, from the very opening like scene that something dark is going to happen in the show. And basically, and I can't remember if it's like the very start or if it comes in later, but anyway, in my head, it's the very first scene, we'll see, uh, which is like 2021, we see this, you know, train tracks in this, uh, you know, like a, a train, train station, that's the word I'm trying to look for, and there is a very old man who looks very unkempt, um, he looks like, you know, he might be sleeping rough on the streets, um, he looks like he probably doesn't own anything, he looks very rough, and he sees on the television that they're talking about the fact that 41 years after the Gwangju uprising, which is also, I think, known as what, like a pro-democracy demonstration or something anyway I can't remember um that the the body of a victim has been found someone that has been missing for 41 years has been unburied and they show two things that this person had or like one is this kind of um fucked up silver watch you know like a pocket watch and this guy on the train station freaks out when he sees this on the TV like he's just you know that he knows who this is and that's sad immediately you know an old man who is living rough so you can only imagine that whatever happened to him 41 years ago has not led him to have a good kind life um and then we flip back to 1980 and we meet our main character, or one of our main characters, uh, played by the actor Ido Han. So Ido Han's character is Huang Hite. So Hite is a university student in Seoul, and he is studying to be a doctor. And he is kind of—I think he's about to graduate, or realistically, he should have graduated. And he—he's kind of delaying it because he wants to enter a song competition <laughs> and I have to say throughout this drama <laughs> all the time he's like hey can I play a song for you all the time and I was like <laughs> anyway it was fine <laughs> I was like there's more important things going on than your song Hite anyway sorry <laughs> so it kind of opens with this weird scene I thought for him where there's this student protest and he drives through in this super flash car and he's just super cool and he clearly isn't taking part in the protest he's very like not nah, back off I'm not being part of this like I don't care you do what you want like he's very I want to say he's very confident in who he is and he's very easily able to say no to people 
who were kind of, I suppose, trying to shame him into getting involved or whatever. But Hite's whole kind of big problem is that his dad works for this very, very scary branch of the government, who is basically the branch that's going around and arresting people, disappearing people and torturing a lot of people. Um, very scary stuff. So he there's a lot of pressure from his home life and he can't really, I think he, you know, he just doesn't want to get involved in any of this stuff because it all leads back to his dad. Um, but we kind of find out that there's someone in a hospital in Seoul and she's a young woman who's in like a mad coma and we don't really know what's happened or what his relation is to her, but he feels obviously beholden to help her. She is potentially dying or going to die. It's very unstable, it seems, but he really wants to move her to Gwangju, which is her hometown and also his hometown. Um, and so a lot of the drama at the start from his perspective, and I suppose this is about getting this character, Hite, back home to his hometown of Gwangju. Um, so he goes there to talk to the local hospital and find out if he can get this woman transferred out to Gwangju. And the hospital is a private hospital and they're obviously like, yeah, sure, if you give us like a zillion dollars. And he's like, well, I don't have a zillion dollars. Um, so he's like, I know who does have a zillion dollars. It's my dad. So he goes back to his dad's big old freaking mansion, which is in Gwangju. And his dad is a really, really fucking scary dad, played by a character called Omar. No played by an actor called Oman Sok. I'm just going to call him Hite's evil dad. Um, so he is, you know, he's a like kind of like, he looks like a secret police kind of dude. I don't really know much about, you know, the structure of this kind of thing, but he's a scary dude and he comes from a scary department of the government. Um, but he, so Hite is an illegitimate son um, from a previous relationship. I'm not sure. I don't think it was an affair. I think it was just a, a relationship from before um, Scary Evil Dad got married. So he's married now to a woman and they have a kid. So Hite has a younger half-brother who, for the first half of the drama, is just a very kind of sour, quiet boy. But obviously, you know, he has his reasons <laughs> to be like that. So there's a lot of home life problems. Um Evil dad is just, he's super controlling, he's super scary, he doesn't give his legitimate son even the slightest time of day, and he only really gives Hite time of day because Hite, in a lot of ways, is, I think, rebelling against his dad. Like, he's trying to find his own way in life, but his dad's like, no, you're going to graduate being a doctor, you're going to do this, you're going to do everything I want you to do. But what Hite wants to do is, I don't know, play his guitar at the university song competition. Apparently he mentions this often, <laughs> but it's okay because he's played by Ido Hyun, so I still love him. <laughs> um, and so he goes home and he's like to his evil dad, hey, can I have a zillion dollars? Um, and the evil dad's like, why? And he's like, well, I can't tell you. And so the evil dad happens to have gone out to dinner with some like scary government officials. And I quite liked this. Like the dad's really scary, but constantly you see him in his work life paired up with even worse men. And he's under all sorts of extreme, uh, ex extreme is not a word, extreme scary pressures at work, particularly around the activities of, you know, his son and his family. And obviously if you work for a department of the government, 
that is looking very closely at like what they consider radicals and communists and arresting them, torturing them and killing them, you also then have a lot of pressure on yourself to be perfect and your family not to put a step out of line. And this is the problem with Hite because he is kind of pushing back on all this shit. He's not involved in politics at all, but he doesn't want to do what his dad says. So the dad has got some pressure, like, or kind of he's got an opportunity, I suppose, at by some old scary dude, I don't know, at work, who's like, hey, like, I can organize a really good marriage for your son um, to marry into an extremely rich family that are, you know, having a little bit of trouble and looking for an investor into their, you know, really big, richy rich business or whatever. And we, you know, the us like us scary dudes and the government think that this would be a really good idea you know don't waste this opportunity so everything that's delivered to scary dad is delivered with a threat so scary dad goes home and you know he's talking to his son and his son's like i need all these zillions of dollars and the dad's like cool all right well you're gonna get married to this random girl that i'm picking out for you and then i'll give you a zillion dollars so hite is pretty desperate um you don't really understand his relationship to this woman that he wants to get to guangzhou in the hospital um but you're you know you're thinking like is this someone he's in love with is this someone that he owes something to and we do find out in the drama I kind of found this storyline a bit weird to be honest because it's so overbearing in terms of his motivation for the first half of the drama it really is the core of what's making Hite kind of tick it's making him make all the decisions that he does and then the second half of the drama I mean, I don't know if I missed a scene, but it, as far as I could see, it's just literally dropped and everyone forgets about this poor girl in the hospital utterly. And uh, she doesn't even get a final scene that I remember unless I totally missed it. So I think by the end, I didn't know whether she was dead or alive or anything. So that was kind of weird. But anyway, I guess that, you know, it just kind of becomes less important once the really scary political shit gets going, which, you know, is fair enough. Um, but Hite kind of agrees. He, he decides, yes, he wants to move this young woman to this hospital. He needs to do it. Um, and I guess I'll just say it here. We find out that Hite, while at university and studying to be a doctor back in Seoul, he had a friend who was involved in the student protests and, um, you know, political stuff. And even though he wasn't involved himself, his friend kept bringing, um, people back to his dorms that had been hurt or if the friend had been hurt and kept asking Hite to stitch them up because they can't go into hospitals because they can get arrested for, you know, taking part in these protests. Um, very scary times. So Hite is not keen on helping, but he just does because this is his friend. But one day his friend comes in holding like a woman that is just bleeding profusely and basically dying. And Hite tries to help. I think the friend goes off and gets arrested um, and then like what, sent off to army or some shit? I don't even know. I feel like I got confused, but I'm pretty sure that's what happens. And Hite sort of left with this girl dying on his floor in the dorm. And it caused this is, I think this, this big problem, like, you know, he gets her to a hospital or whatever, but it gives him this huge trauma about he couldn't really help her. He freezes up and he can't push himself past this. So it's another big motivation to his character. But anyway, that's kind of the reason why I think it's not that he feels beholden to her, really. Like he's the one who tried to save her life, but he's just so entangled with this situation that he just wants to do what he believes is the right thing. Um, so anyway, he agrees with his dad to go out and, you know, get fiance to this random woman that his dad's picked. 
Um, so meanwhile, flip side, we meet the female lead played by the actress Go Min Shi. So her name in the drama is Kim Myung Hee. So Myungi is, uh, she's a nurse at the local hospital. She's, her family live like outside of Gwangju and like out in the countryside. She has a little brother and a dad that she has a very strange relationship with, which I quite liked, even though it ended very sadly for everybody involved. Um, but yeah, so she's very, she's a bit downtrodden I want to say she's been through some shit she's you know come from I guess a background of poverty she's worked really hard she's heavily involved with her like the church in Gwangju and I think that you know the priest or whatever has been like a big mentor and very helpful and she has this dream and her dream is to get the fuck out of Korea and go to Germany and study over there that's what she wants to do and she's secured a scholarship at some like fancy university over there and what she needs now is the plane ticket price. Um, I think it just started raining so that's good nice and loud in the background. <laughs> I feel like it always does that when I record one of these. Um, so Myunghee is, I really liked her as a character. She is, she is very downtrodden. Like I said, she's very like, I don't know. She, she like moves slowly and she just, there's something soft about her in this sort of like world weary kind of way, I want to say. But at the same time, she's very sweet and she's also you know, she'll lash out if she needs to. Like, she's very principled and just extremely strong. Like, this whole idea of someone who's so world-weary and tired and just desperate to get out of her current situation. And frankly, I think quite lonely and unhappy. But at the same time, you know, she has a good relationship with her best friend. She uh, has a great relationship with her very cute little brother. And she has this this mad dream I don't know. I just really, really liked her. I thought she was, um, yeah, she's a very likable character. Um, so Myunghee has a best friend played by the female, the second female lead, uh, played by the actress Gum Se-rok. Uh, so this character's name is Yi Su-ron. So Su-ron is from a very rich family. And of course she is, you know, the one that evil dad is angling to get fiance to the male lead, his son. Um, so Su-ron, I really liked this actress in this role. I really actually liked this character a lot. And I wasn't sure that I was going to because, I don't know, it's a really interesting thing. So Suron is a university student and she is very politically active. She is, you know, she's out there protesting. She really is idealistic. She wants to change the world. And she's terrified about, you know, what's going on politically in her country at this time. Um, and she really, really wants to change it. But the problem is, the flip side, is Suron's family is extremely extremely wealthy which isn't you know that's not a bad thing at all obviously <laughs> and you know Suron has been born into this family this is her life but I think it's just very interesting because there is this difference you know I guess between her and then between some of the the students that she's protesting with and for instance I think particularly between Myungi who comes from this background of poverty and has really had to work hard for everything she has Suron and her are such close friends and they've I don't know they have a really nice friendship but there is this level I suppose where Suron is more privileged and she does have these opportunities that Myunghee doesn't and I don't know there's this level of so for instance um 
I can't remember if this happens at the start, but it's just an example, you know. So Suron goes out like um, protesting with all her mates and they decide that they need however many flyers, like a zillion flyers. And this is the 80s, so you can't just like get your printer in your house and print some fucking flyers. <laughs> you need a bloody printing press or whatever. So, you know, in her dad's factory or whatever, she has a printing press. So they all break into her dad's factory. But then when they're running off into the dark, everyone gets arrested. But Suron gets let go immediately because she's got a rich dad and that was his factory. And, you know, the other kids really turn on her for these kind of things. And I get it, but also it's not Suron's fault. But there is this level of naivety, I think, to her character, which I actually liked. Um, and I liked the kind of conflict this puts with her and Myung-hee. So, for example... Uh, Suron's, you know, richy rich dad, played by some dude who plays a dad in every drama I've ever seen. This is a very charming dude. <laughs> um, he says to her, you know, like the company's suffering or whatever. Like we've got this offer of marriage from this, you know, this this family, and they've, I think, I can't remember at this point if they want to invest or what. Anyway, the dad sort of like go on this bloody blind date. You have to. You just have to. And Suron absolutely doesn't want to go on a blind date with whoever this person is that her dad's picked out in some powerful family or whatever. Um, so she is talking to Myung-hee and realizes that Myung-hee is trying to get up the guts to ask her best friend for a lend of money in order to get her a plane ticket out of the country. And Suron is like, I'll pay for your plane ticket, no worries, but you have to go on this blind date for me. And that is like, you know, that's a, a level of, I don't know, I found it like really interesting because at that point when she, when Suron kind of does that, I'm a bit unsure if I liked her, like it was very flippant and it wasn't very thoughtful. And I felt like Myung-hee, Myung-hee was desperate. She's in this, like backed into a corner. She's so... Like, she's kind of in trouble internally, I think. There's something a bit wrong. She's not a happy girl. And yet Suron is just so sort of in her own world, like really, really apart living her life that she can't even see that Myung-hee is having some troubles. Um, and so, you know, she proposes this thing where Myung-hee has to go on this blind date for her um, because, well, she, she does... It, she doesn't want to do it. I don't know, but she won't stand up and say to her dad that she doesn't want to do it anyway. Um, actually, it didn't make, it made me a bit like, hmm, that's interesting at the beginning, but Suron really, really grew on me. I, I thought that she was a very interesting character that kind of gets caught up in a bad situation, but in the end really stands up for what she believes is right. Whilst at the beginning, you kind of feel like she's almost play acting the part of like, you know, a serious political activist. And then when it comes to the crunch, will she really go all the way? But in the end, you know, after a long time of you feeling like she wouldn't, she would, you know, compromise all her principles. In the end, she does the right thing. And that's why I ended up really, really liking her. She's also, you know, very charming and nice and outgoing. Anyway, uh, and she has an older brother who's quite in love with Myung-hee but hasn't really done anything about it. Um, so that's the second male lead played by Lee Sang-hee uh, and that character's name is Su-chan. Uh, so anyway, Su-ron sends her best friend Myung-hee out on this blind date and meanwhile Hite has obviously agreed to go on the blind date 
Um, but when he's at the hospital, like, you know, trying to get them to let him bring this woman down from Seoul, he happens to witness, um, I can't remember who it is, but some idiot basically having a go at a nurse. And this nurse, which of course is Myung has, you know, and this is an example of she might seem a bit world weary and downtrodden, but like, if you're in the wrong, you're going to hear about it. She's extremely strong. And so, you know, she stands up for herself. She's extremely cool. And obviously, Hite absolutely notices. Not only is she extremely cool and principled, but she's also very hot. And I'm sure he notices that too. <laughs> oh, Hite. Um, so Hite turns up at his, or he's like walking to his blind date. They're going to meet at a cafe or restaurant or, you know, wherever. It doesn't matter. Who cares? And he happens to witness like I can't remember someone collapsing on the street, little heart attack, some shit like that. And Myung-hee like turns up and she's wearing, you know, Suron's beautiful clothes that she could never really afford. And she's just like the coolest woman in the world and like saves this person who's like, I don't know, having a heart attack or whatever. And of course, Hite couldn't. He's frozen. Whenever there's a, like a serious sort of emergency situation, he's got a block. He can't do anything. And so when he sees Myung, he like swoop in and save the day and look very beautiful while she does it. He remembers her as the nurse from the hospital who so impressed him. And then he's still thinking about her. He can't get her out of his head. And he goes into the, the hotel and sits down. And of course, who should turn up but Myung-hee. I really like this because, you know, his face when he sees her and he laughs. And at the time, I thought that he must think this is the person he's meant to meet because Myung-hee obviously introduces herself as her friend, Suron, um, who's meant to be there for the date. Uh, my cat wants some food. <laughs> She's meowing. Um, but I, it turns out in the end, you realize after a while, or maybe other people realize straight away, and I'm just a silly Billy, I don't know. But Hite knew immediately that Myung-hee wasn't who she said, who she, said she was. And Myung-hee, um, because she's been told by Suron, I think it's like five dates or three dates she has to go on, which is what, you know, Suron's dad has said has to happen. So Myung-hee's whole agenda is to be such a bad date that Hite will tell his dad that he doesn't want to meet her anymore and the whole fiancé thing will get called off and it won't be basically Suron's fault. She won't have to do it herself and disappoint her dad. Um, so Hite is treated to this, you know, very hilarious whole series of dates with Myung-hee where she's basically doing everything she can to frighten him off. And, you know, it's very fun and silly and quirky and he is just head over heels immediately completely and utterly charmed by her but she is slowly charmed by him as well because no matter what mad thing she does he just takes it all in his stride and of course this is because he knows that she's just putting on an act and he thinks she's bloody hilarious um but it's really charming I really liked it um I also think the slow progress progression of the romance in this drama was really, really well done. Um, I think that it begins obviously with, you know, this light and silly kind of meet cute kind of series of dates and it gets a little bit deeper quite quickly. And I think in a believable way. And then because immediately after they sort of very sweetly both kind of tentatively realize that they have feelings for each other and are beginning to express this you know Myung-hee's kind of pushing him away a bit because she she's leaving in a month this is the beginning of May she's leaving at the end of May to go for a scholarship in Germany 
And Hite realizes, you know, they've only got so long. So at first the idea is, oh, well, let's not do this because it's going to hurt. Like, I really like you. If I spend a whole month being with you, it could be a big problem at the end. But in the end, you know, they like each other too much. So they're sort of giving in. Um, but of course, by this point, it's when I think the, the kind of the mellow kind of convoluted stuff kicks in, which I didn't mind. There was only like one tiny bit that I was like, oh, that was a bad choice. Not the writing, but just basically them, the characters. Um, but what happens is Suron realizes that, you know, her dates are a little bit more serious than what she thought. So basically her dad's company is in trouble. And marrying into this very politically powerful connected family is a good thing. And also this, you know, evil dad, so Hite's evil dad is going to invest in Suron's rich dad's uh you know, company business or whatever the fuck. Um, so there's a lot of pressure on Suron now. Like her dad's unwell. He needs this. You know, if, if you like this boy, then freaking let's make this happen. Like, and so she kind of agrees. She agrees to marry him. She realizes that her family is in jeopardy and she needs to do this for her father. So this is just after Myung-hee has been like, yeah, okay, finally, I will agree to date Hite. So she's been kind of holding off. She's going to tell him the next day um, that she'll agree to date him for the month. And so Myungi goes to see Suron and is like, I've got something to tell you. Like, I want to, you know, we're going to start dating. I know, like, really everyone thinks he's your almost fiancé, but this is what's going to happen. I really like him. And Suron immediately is like, please, can you tell him to agree to marry me and come to like a marriage meeting with our families? Like we need to get engaged. And so Myung-hee, there was this really cool scene that I really liked. I think it's the start of the next episode after that's probably like a, what, like a, you know, an ending scene hook or whatever. And it just shows Myung-hee her whole life up until that point, just saying, you know, yes, yes 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 to everything that anyone ever asks her even if it puts her out even if it breaks her heart and then you know a really scary time when she's arrested and her dad tells her you know like just confess to it all and her dad of course thinks he's protecting her because he is this history as a communist which you know with this government that is bad that's really bad his legs all fucked up from being tortured so he thinks he's protecting his daughter but all myung he sees is her having to give up everything she's ever wanted including her own you know righteousness of not having done anything wrong but having to take the fall um and she just says yes to everything and then we see her say it again to suron you know like suron needs her suron's family needs the money okay yes and so when Hite comes you know he's all smiley he's can't wait to see her thinks they're gonna get together and Myung he's like hey um actually can you get engaged to my best friend instead and this is the part where I was like Hite don't do this because Hite is literally like he's super upset fair enough I think he's a bit mad and I think it's one of those like well you know I'm gonna show her so immediately within literally two seconds he's contacted Suron and they've got engaged and as soon as Myung-hee hears it like I feel like Myung-hee starts having second thoughts very fucking quickly. I feel if Hite had just waited 24 hours before like firming up that engagement, <laughs> I feel like none of it would have happened. Um, but I guess, you know, the flip side of that, of course, is that 
Hite is experiencing a huge amount of pressure by his dad to go ahead with this engagement. And of course, Hite has taken the zillion dollars from his dad to pay the hospital for this transfer and all these fees. He's already done that and he told his dad that in exchange he would do anything his dad said. So like he's he's really in a tight spot as well. Um, so basically Hite and Suron get engaged uh, very publicly and formally and everyone is in absolute agony because no one wants this to happen um, except for second male lead Suchan who thinks everything's bloody brilliant and great because he doesn't realize what's going on uh and then there's just loads of kind of twisty agony scenes where you know our lovers can't be together and suran is like really stuck in the middle and losing her best friend and like all these fractures between everyone's relationships um and then that's really well that's the start of the drama really and then from there you know that goes on for a while and there's a lot of just interpersonal things and relationships and then obviously you know evil dad gets wind that his son Hite might want to break off a relate off the off the engagement and he's actually in love with someone else and he starts getting involved and he's a very scary man so you know Mongi gets arrested and all sorts of scary shit happens so you know they kind of break up and then they get together again and then the the Guangzhou uprising stuff begins and it's intense oh I said intense I was gonna not say that <laughs> it was really good uh yeah okay I think that's you know it, that's when things start getting really really heavy there's soldiers you know marching into Guangzhou there is um you know, the local protest students go and manage to get, you know, they go and take guns out of local armories. And now there is, you know, a proper, very scary battle going on that includes the military open firing on a whole huge, like, group of unarmed protesters. Like, it's a total massacre. It's terrible. Um, and we see all that from the point of view mostly of, um, you know, our main characters working in the hospital. Uh, so I think that's all I'll say on the setup, which was a lot. I said a lot, um, but a, a lot actually happens now when I think about it, which of course it does. It's a drama. <laughs> all right. Stuff I loved next. All right. So I went and fed the cat. So she stopped meowing, but I can't do anything about the rain, which is smashing against the roof and window, but I hope it lends for, um, makes for a lovely background noise <laughs> anyway so on to the stuff that I loved about youth of May uh so I loved the dreamy retro vibes it's obviously set in 1980 it has this very soft look this very kind of pastel look um I really liked it um oh the rain it's very heavy um so I really actually liked the mellow I feel like I complained a little bit about some of the mellow stuff you know just that idea of like kind of creating their own problems a tiny bit but on the whole I actually found it very satisfying and beautiful I really liked all the romance stuff I felt like the emotions and the agony of the characters who can't be together you know it feels very real and very weighty so I really really liked that um so you know I loved Go Min Shi in this I loved her character Myung Hee um just very interesting, I think, after her being so screechy in Love Alarm to see her such a different kind of character in this. Um, but yeah, I loved her. I've kind of, I feel like I've talked about that character and what I loved about her at length already. So um, him, you know, I think Ido Han has such a, 
I don't know. I feel like there's different types of acting and, and you know, this is coming from me. I know, I know zero about acting at all. I really don't. Um, but also like, this is just personal taste, I suppose. And I, I don't really mind, you know, I can't tell if someone's really good or not usually, but I do feel like there seems to be a lot going on on this guy's face all the time. Like all these kind of like micro things happening and, you know, he like twitches in his jaw and muscles and like swallowing and like just the way he moves, it just feels like very, like you're just watching a human being and not like someone acting, I guess, even though there's a lot going on, it just feels, or, you know, to me, and I don't know anything, it looks very natural. Um, also, he's very handsome, like, and, you know, that helps. He's great. Um, so, yeah, I really like Ido Khan. I'm excited to see what he will do in the future. Also, I gotta say, I like Tite. He's very, very likable. He's a little bit, I don't know, I was gonna say swaggery, but I don't think that's quite the right word. It's just this kind of I don't even know. I really liked him. He's just very self-confident, but is sardonic? Sardonic the right word? Like, he seems to have this slightly sort of cynical sort of outlook sometimes. I don't really know how to explain it. But then, obviously, when it comes to Myonghi, he's so tentative and true. And you feel like you've really sunk beneath this kind of outward sheen in the way that he, you know, deals with his dad. He's always got a little bit of a smart alecky reply to people. And you feel like there's a bit of a wall there that when he has scenes with Myongi, that he really sinks beneath all that. And you feel like you get to see him as he actually is without him putting on a front. Um, anyway, that's kind of how I felt about it. I particularly loved, I think, um, in the romance, um, you know, it's really beautiful. I think there's a lot of really beautiful romantic moments, um, lovely kisses that you feel are actually romance, like real, real romance. And also, even though the time period that these characters know each other for is so slim, like we're talking just a few weeks here, you don't doubt that it's serious like you don't doubt that their feelings are real and I think that that's quite a feat in writing you know a serious romance that takes place across four weeks that the viewers actually feel like these people do love each other and that when the drama finished they would have continued to love each other um, and I felt that really strongly so I thought that was done really well um oh and I was gonna say in terms of that romance that I loved I think particularly there's this tenderness and sweetness and like tentativeness that happens particularly you know the couple gets kind of broken up they're both sort of breaking up with each other for each other's own good of course but it does feel real because the pressures that are put on them are quite heavy and terrifying and then you know he comes back from Seoul and they just choose to be together despite the odds and those scenes of them really stripping themselves emotionally bare I think in front of each other are very beautiful and there's a there's a real tentative tenderness there I think with them when they kind of meet up again I really really liked it um so I said I quite like the structure of the drama like even though it does open with a scene where you know someone's you know dead and been found like in 2021 you know I, I quickly forgot about that <laughs> really quickly and just sunk into the drama and I feel in a lot of ways even though there's this this menace in the background of this political shifting cogs and this scary stuff where you know things are heavy um 
it kind of feels lower stakes at the start, like all the problems people are having, even though, you know, there is scary dad involved who loves to arrest people. The problems they're having still feel, you know, like relationship entanglements and disappointing your family. And then it all escalates and escalates. And then by the end of the drama, we're talking actual life and death. And it's very intense. <laughs> Said it again. Um, so yeah, anyway, I really liked that structure. I really liked the way it escalated. I thought it was done really well. And I do think that particularly towards the end, once you get into all the uprising stuff and you're seeing the soldiers come in and you're seeing what's happening um, and realizing you know, that this really did happen and having that framework or that structure of the drama with, with knowing that the government find this body in 2021 and who is it and who is this, you know, older gent who's hanging out on the train station who looks like he's had a tough life it's really it adds this level of scariness I suppose this ominous menace to watching the show even when it's having its light moments because you know something dark is coming and I thought it was done really well um so I've said that I really really liked the second male lead um I thought he was really good he he plays this very charming very good very warm kind of man who I actually really liked like there is a bit of a love triangle he really likes well he really loves Myungi really and he's sort of just starting to like clearly try and do something about this this is what he he wants to do but at the same time he's very supportive of her going overseas to start even though he's crushed he's crushed she's gonna leave but he's you know he's very encouraging he really tries to do his best to help her and the only times he kind of puts his foot in it is when he really thinks that Hite is you know a terrible player and is like seducing Myungi and as soon as he, he kind of gets the full story there and realizes that he's kind of in the wrong with the way that he's thought things were. He very much backs off and just tries to help and really never tries to push Myungi, I think. And I really liked that about him. I found him to be a very warm and likable character. And I wasn't sure, you know, if that's where that sort of, you know, rich kind of dude who was interested in her was going to go. And I, I kind of liked it. He really had his own sort of growth journey um, in the drama. Uh, and there were two scenes particularly that I really liked with the second male lead. One was when, you know, he realizes that his sister has sort of kind of pulled Myungi and Hite into this weird, you know, marriage, fake marriage scam and got you know, Hite's evil dad involved and Sutan basically feels unbelievably responsible towards Myunghee that she can no longer go overseas and that her passport has been revoked, um, her passport rights and her visa, like she can't get one anymore. Um, it won't get processed in time and all this kind of stuff. And there's this scene where, you know, he meets her for, um, I think, you know, a coffee or something. And at this point, Hite's gone you know they've kind of broken up they've had to Myungi's been arrested she's just been through shit and she's so she just looks so tired she looks so tired of everything that is around her and her dream is gone she's accepted that she will never get to do the thing that she wants and now the only other thing she's ever found in her life that she really wanted which is of course Hite has gone as well and they, they have this kind of conversation, her and Suchan, the, the second male lead, which is really like, 
oh, it's like play acting, but it's done so well where you can tell like they're kind of small talk and chatting, but it's not real. You know, they're just sort of putting on a front and then he just breaks down in tears because he wants to help her. He's like, please let me, you know, pay for your study or please let me do something. And she's just like, no, you know, this is the way it is. It's not your fault. I don't blame you, but I'm not accepting, you know, your help. I'm okay. I can do this by myself. And but Sutan is just like he just breaks down and you know that he's he's kind of saying I need to help you for myself because I have broken my own heart by hurting you. And it's so I don't know. It really like kind of got beneath my skin a bit. I thought it was it was a really interesting moment anyway. I really liked it. And it's not like I wanted them to get together, but I just really felt his agony in that moment. I think it really felt very true to me for whatever reason. <laughs> um, and then there's another scene with him that I really loved. So when the riot starts, and this is true to life, um, random passers-by begin to get involved. So basically what happens with the riot, I guess, to explain, um, from what I understand, you know, the, this military general guy who's really trying to edge his way into power, um, uses the student protests as an opportunity to send military presence around the place to really, you know, push that martial law and give himself a position of even greater power. Um, and so he says that spies from the North, North Korea, have infiltrated the South and infiltrated all these, you know, pro-democracy kind of um, student protests. And they're actually, all those students among them are North Korean spies. And so all this military presence is sent in everywhere um, because there's this huge, huge protest in Seoul. And then that kind of ripples outwards. And in Gwangju, it all boils over, basically. Gwangju gets completely locked down. Um, there's no communication in and out. Uh, it's filled with soldiers. Um, it's just crazy. And then because the government was, you know, there was this information control where the rest of the country couldn't really get information on what happened. And even now, 41 years later, the actual death toll is unknown because after this event, the government cracked down so much that they released a death toll, which was small. And anyone who tried to protest that death toll or say that more people died than what the government was reporting got arrested. Um, so very scary fucking shit. But basically in real life, these soldiers come in, they start arresting. I'm doing little finger umlauts like arresting North Korean spies, but really they're arresting students that were involved in the uprising. But they're also arresting passers-by and just random people. And the very first person apparently that was murdered during this was just a man who was walking by. I think he was in his 30s. He was deaf and he was just walking by as the soldiers were arresting students and they bashed this guy to death. And that's a real thing. Not, yeah, anyway, that's horrible. I'm sorry. That's really sad. Um, but it just shows you how dark this whole thing is. Um, so in the drama, you know, Sutan... I feel like he has his head buried in the sand. You know, he thinks that his little sister Suron and her political protesting is, you know, I think he thinks it's something young that she's going to grow out of. Like he's living a good life. Like he might not agree with martial law or, you know, a military man <laughs> putting himself in power, but it doesn't really impact him. So he, the same as Suron kind of is at the beginning of the drama, he is living in his own 
good world and he's a good man like he's good to the people around him he's very good to his employees and he thinks that that's enough I suppose um but he you know he walks out of his office and he hasn't really noticed that the whole city is fucking gone insane and he sees like two soldiers just arresting I don't know if it's like a young student like a high school student a girl or a boy or something I can't even remember but he goes over and he's like you can't do this. Like, you know, just look at this person. They clearly shouldn't be arrested. And immediately, you know, he gets hit in the head with a baton or whatever, and he gets punched up, he gets arrested, and he gets thrown in jail, and he's gone, you know, for a couple of days. But because his little sister, at this point, as far as, you know, Hite's evil dad knows, is still engaged to his son, um, you know, Suchan's dad or auntie or whatever call in a favor with scary evil dad who calls in a favor with his scary evil government people and they get Sutan released and Sutan goes home and then later on he kind of finally realizes that his little sister is back in Guangzhou that she's running around the streets she's trying to help the students she's trying to save people she's doing the best that she can and he kind of walks in on her I can't remember if it's in the hospital or in factory anyway it doesn't matter but he he sort of still kind of telling her, you know, like, stop this, come home, like, this is all too much. And she's trying to get across to him, like, no, like, I have to help. I have to do something to help. Like, this this isn't the time to bury your head in the sand. And Suchan's just, like, really not listening until he sees this missing poster on the wall and he recognizes this very young boy who he knew was arrested alongside him and had been in prison and he doesn't know what happened to this boy and it's the point where it hits him and I think it's so often the case you know bad things happen but when there's a face to it it's a little bit different and I think Suchan you know when he was in jail he was so scared for himself that he didn't have time to think about other people he was so in shock that this could ever even happen that, you know, he wasn't worried about anybody else. And when he sees this boy's face again on the wall, he just breaks down. And this is the point where he realizes that he's not the man that he thought he was or that he wants to be. And I really, really liked this scene. Again, he's just crying and he says to his sister that, you know, when he got let out of jail, he went home and he went to bed and he felt warm and cozy and content because he was no longer in jail and he never thought about that boy or all those other people that were still in jail. Um, It's a really heavy moment, but I really, really liked it. And it kind of comes about because when he's talking to the boy's parents, you know, I was in jail with your son. The boy's parents are like, well, how did you get out? Like what happened? How did you get out? Maybe we can do that for our son. And that's the point where I think Sutan realizes that he has lived there is an element of privilege to his life. And that, I suppose, can be a very, very shocking thing if it's not something that you're aware of. And I think particularly if you are a good person who is doing your best to only put good things out in the world, which I think Sutan had been. So I really liked that moment. It seemed like, I don't know, I feel like the drama is kind of you know, I know Suran is like a, she's a protesting student, but a lot of the characters and their experiences during this uprising are just bystanders that people pulled up, like, you know, on, on the tide, they're not people at the forefront of a movement, but they're people that are impacted by it anyway. And I think that that's a very powerful viewpoint into something like this, because I don't know, it just felt very realistic 
I guess the emotions and the the way that each of our main characters are dealing with these really larger than life events. Like I can't even imagine experiencing something like this, but of course these things happen all the time, all over the world, and people do experience these things. Um, so moving on, uh, something else that I love was the second female lead. And I think I've already talked about her at length about, you know, this kind of stuff that I liked about her character sort of growing and changing and then taking ownership alongside Sutan and their dad, you know, all of them make this choice to, if, if it means, you know, they don't know what's going to happen, but potentially they'll sacrifice everything to help. That's what they decide to do. And I really liked it. I thought, it's scary, you know, no one wants to give up what they have, but they, that's what they choose to do. And I thought that was really cool. Um, what else? Uh, I've said that I quite liked the little kids. So these are the two younger brothers and, you know, the evil dad's wife and all these dynamics. When the two little kids got first introduced, they're off at a soccer camp or a football camp, depending on where you're from around the world. And I wasn't sure. I was like, who are these two young little boys? Um, I mean, they're very cute, but I was like, little boy storyline. <laughs> but in the end, I really liked both of them. And I thought, their little, you know, personal storylines really tied into things, particularly like the whole thing with um, Myungi's little brother really, really broke my heart. It was a bit, it was a bit much for me, to be honest, but I liked it. Um, so it was heaps of other stuff I liked, so much stuff I liked. I'm going to talk about some of the stuff I didn't love so much and then talk about the ending. And frankly, I thought the ending, even though it broke my heart, I thought it was done brilliantly. So that is, again, all stuff that I loved, even though part of me hates it too <laughs> all right uh that's it for me from youth of may stuff that i loved okay so some stuff that i didn't love quite as much to be honest uh, you know even though i'm going to talk about it because why not <laughs> i'll just bring up my little quibbles uh they were just that they like nothing nothing was like properly off-putting I suppose I want to say um even the little tiny things that I had overall the drama's just really really good um but I guess I'll you know I'll talk about them because that's that's what this section is for so I didn't love <laughs> the intro scene for our main character um Hwang Hite I thought it was really strange in hindsight so this is the scene where he you know he arrives on Seoul University campus in this like super flash car and I think he's got sunnies and he's like beeping his way through a crowd of you know protest protesting students and he, you know in this scene he comes across as like this really like richy rich swaggery devil may care doesn't give a crap about anybody else or their feelings kind of a you know he really comes across as the way you know that I guess a lot of k-drama male leads actually are you know like just r that kind of rich jerk kind of character but within five minutes of spending time with Huang Hite you realize that that's not the kind of dude he is at all like he might have money now but he didn't grow up that way like his mom was a singer in a nightclub he grew up you know, with just his single mum and it's only like after she died that his dad sort of offered him a place in his home and Hite doesn't know his dad or like his dad, but he's just so lonely. He doesn't want to be alone in the world. So he accepted 
family. So Hite's experience isn't as a rich, swaggery guy who doesn't have empathy for other people. Like he, he isn't a jerk. He might not be connected or engaged with politics because he's chosen not to, um, particularly because of his connection to his dad and his scary, scary dad. But yeah, I just thought it was a really weird intro. It felt like this strange sort of flashy kind of thing that just, I mean, it's literally like two seconds of screen time, so it's really not a big deal. Um, but yeah, I just thought it was kind of weird. And, and you know, I was like, what a jerk. And then within three minutes of spending time with Hite, I was like, oh, I love him. He's so nice. <laughs> so it was just kind of weird, but also I didn't care. Um this is an interesting one because particularly in the first half of the drama, Hite is very like song obsessed. And this was kind of, this is the title aside, um, but you know, random history thing that I read that was interesting to me personally, apparently all throughout this time, you know, folk music was getting really big in Korea, I guess probably earlier than this as well, but it all got like banned and all the folk singers got arrested and shit apparently because, you know, folk music when you think about it like Bob Dylan and all those things is very politically engaged and you know these people were becoming like the voice of a new generation so anyway the government squashed it um so that's an interesting side fact that I read um somewhere that I can't remember so hopefully it's true <laughs> anyway so Hite's sort of obsession with singing a song for Myungi was um I found it kind of weird at the start of the drama, but then it kind of comes back in at the end in a way that was so powerful that I was so glad it was there and I really had to eat my words around how I'd felt about it. So my whole thing was, I don't know, I didn't mind that he was into singing and songwriting and I loved all the scenes where he's, you know, playing guitar for her. They were actually very beautiful and romantic. It was just more that every two minutes he kept when they're dating at the very start he kept being like hey like I want to play a song for you do you want to listen to my song and I was like I don't know if I was dating someone and all they could talk about was like hey do you want to listen to my song I'd be like well I don't know <laughs> so anyway that's a really random personal thing but I have to say and this is going on to stuff that I love um you know he's got this kind of obsession with it with entering this song competition at university and you know, obviously it's what he wants to do, make music. And he's really kind of dogged about it to the point where there's this scene where he comes back to Gwangju and like, you know, things have got weird and he's about to leave the city and he wants to get his guitar. So he goes to his friend's house and his friend's house has been overturned. Like it's very scary. His friend is missing and everyone's on edge. Something weird is happening in the city. There's soldiers around and, you know, but he tastes still like, my guitar, where's my guitar? And I'm like, Hite, you have bigger problems than where your guitar is right now. Like, where's your fucking friend? <laughs> anyway, oh my gosh, what happens to the friend? Oh, um, but then it kind of goes into all the stuff and he, you know, has to get over his trauma. Hite does, has to get over his trauma around helping people, you know, emergency medicine kind of situation, emergency medical situations and stuff like that. And the drama progresses and then... I don't know if I should talk about it now or when I talk about the ending, but there's this scene where the song comes back into it and it broke my heart. And this was the point where I just like, I felt like I'd done all right with holding back the tears. Like I was very sad, but I was like, no, no, like I'm not going to cry. And then this was why I was just like, Bleh, boo oh my gosh, it really made me cry. And then I was like, 
I liked it so much, like despite you know me kind of making fun of it and complaining about it, it worked so well and was so powerful by the end. Uh, so I, I'll talk about that at the end. <laughs> so another thing that <laughs> it's not that I didn't love this, I just thought it was fucking hilarious. Um, so you know Hite and Myungi, like you know she's like go date my best friend and get married to her or whatever. So. You know, Hite and the second female lead, Suron, are having an actual, like, proper official engagement party. And Myung-hee goes to the engagement party and she is super upset. She's like, why did I give up on this thing that I wanted? And, you know, Hite is absolutely devastated. Everyone's devastated. So Hite, like, goes outside and, you know, he finds Myung-hee or she finds him. I can't fucking remember. And they're kind of looking at each other and then Myung-hee's like, you know, I do want to be with you like I made a mistake and she's crying and it's a really like it's a nice scene where they both finally you know admit and he's so happy he's like yay and then they like hold hands and <laughs> drapes like bloody just skip skip <laughs> like they're skipping through a field of daisies they skip in slow motion while smiling at each other really happily down the street and off into the distance like but they do it like they literally round the building in absolute 100% full view of every single window in this wedding hall and you know up until this point it's kind of like oh okay they're gonna date but they're gonna have to keep this shit secret right and then they traipse in front of like all the windows and literally every major character like sees them <laughs> I was just like you guys come on like I don't know, like personally, I might have got one of them in a taxi, drove off in one direction, the other one could have walked off into the bushes and then they could have met at a secret rendezvous, but whatever, these two love causing some issues for themselves, but I didn't really mind it, I just, it actually made me laugh out loud a little bit. (laughs) Uh, All right, so what next? Um... Oh, I was just going to complain again about how when Myung-hee asks Hite to date her friend and he actually does it. <laughs> I was like, he, he probably shouldn't have actually listened to her. She clearly was going to change her mind if he'd given it five minutes, but whatever. All right. So next on my list of stuff that I didn't love was bloody Hite's dad. What a fucker. I hated him. Uh, but I didn't hate, you know, it wasn't a bad thing about the drama. He was just a bad dude. Um, yeah, I don't know. He's like, he's not super humanized other than you see he gets all this pressure on him at work. He's a really scary guy. In the end, obviously, he realizes that, you know, he's, he's kind of doing all this shit to, I guess, make a good life for his family. But I don't think, I don't really feel like he has a lot of caring or love for his family. And when they all leave him, I don't think he feels lonely or you know, sad to lose them. I think he's shocked because he thought he had control. I think that he believes that he owns his wife and his little son completely and utterly and that they would never, ever break away from him. And I think it's a shock when they do. Um, But I didn't care about him. He totally worked in the plot though. And, you know, I think served a purpose to represent that scary face of the government with an actual face of a human, if that made sense. Um, But there is a scene that really, really killed me, which I'll just talk about now, even though this is going on forever. But um, so Hite has a good friend who's like obviously a bit in love with Suron and he's like, you know, has mad 70s hair (laughs) and he's a student protester and he's, you know, just hangs out with them all. 
And then he gets arrested in in the um, the riots and he's sort of being accused as being a bit of a, I think, a bit of a ringleader sort of a character. And he's getting he's getting tortured very severely and it's very scary. And he doesn't know, really, he doesn't have any information to give them. But, oh, I think maybe it's like getting to the point where he's he's very worried about what he might say. Actually, I can't remember, but whatever. Um, but he, you know, Hite's dad is there getting really involved and Hite's dad doesn't know who this boy is but the boy flashes back to this memory of him you know hanging out with Hite and him him kind of joking with Hite and saying oh you know if I was ever arrested by your dad like if I told your dad that I knew you do you think like you know haha he'd let me go and at the time Hite sort of sighed and he said no like if you said that he'd just kill you like and it's pretty dark but I guess that's the kind of stuff you talk about if you live in a climate like this and so you know this protester student boy he remembers this conversation and he says it in front of like all these scary dudes in this office and he's like you know oh I know Hite like you know he said that you'll get me out like you know he's part of all this stuff and he knows when he does this that scary dad is straight away going to have to shut him down because scary dad can't have any blowback on his own family scary dad doesn't want his own son implicated because he's working very 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 hard to not implicate himself through his son's actions basically like he has to protect the reputation of his family or he's gone as well like if his son is involved with you know what the government is like considering to be communist then he's gone as well um but it's so sad and you know, this young student gets bashed to death and he dies and it is fucking horrific. Like it's so horrific. And it's just one of those moments of the idea of someone sacrificing themselves, you know, for what they believe in, for this big, big cause, but doing it, even though no one will ever know that they did it. And that always kills me the most. Like the idea of no one even knowing what happened you know it makes me so fucking sad anyway it was a very incredible scene but it really hurt to watch um something else that I didn't completely love was um I didn't really care to be honest but you know there's the whole unconscious woman in the hospital and it's a big huge storyline at the start with Hite and I really just didn't I just felt like everyone forgot about it at the very end and I thought maybe unless I missed it I totally could have just missed a scene but I felt like there was no just final like what happened to her? Did she die? Did she not die? Um, I just would have liked to know. Um, oh, so there was another one that uh, I'm going to put this under hated, but actually it was very good. And this was Suron kind of has this like little police guy who, um, is quite enamored by her. So, you know, always trying to help her. And, you know, when Suron and a whole bunch of other just, you know, random innocent bystanders all get arrested by, um, you know, during the uprising, they get arrested by soldiers and they're all like kneeling on the ground with their hands over their heads. It's really scary. And they don't know. They don't know if they're about to get bashed to death at any moment, arrested, disappeared, anything. And this police officer who really likes Suron turns up and like pretends to be on the police, on the soldier sides and sort of sends all the soldiers off and then quickly makes sure that everyone runs and gets free. And then she finds him later dying on the street because they've re- the soldiers have retaliated. And and I did read that, you know, local, this happened to local policemen, which I presume is why it wound its way into the drama that 
um, that some local policemen did do that. They pretended to help um, just to save people and there was this retaliation that got them murdered, quite a few. And I hate that so much. Um, so that's in my stuff I didn't love section, even though I liked that they included it in the drama because I think in a way, even though this drama is you know, it is a romance mellow and it is fictional and there is all this, you know, intertwined relationship stuff. I felt, I don't know, I felt like there, there is this element of it that it is a real homage to the people who died and the people who were lost and the people who were left behind. And I think that when it goes into those storylines, it handles them. I mean, I don't know. I don't live there. <laughs> it's not my history, but I felt like it was very sensitive and thoughtful and really a, a beautiful and really painful to watch kind of honoring of this awful thing that happened. Um, so I guess I'm going to talk about the ending, but I'll, I'll maybe do that in the next section and then I'm going to stop. <laughs> Okay, so the ending of Youth of May. Um, I both hated and absolutely loved it, um, but it was it's pretty fun. <laughs> okay, so I guess I'm just going to go through some of the things that hit me the hardest about the end. Um, so Myungi's little brother, it was so sad. You know, he's trying to get out of Gwangju. His dad's come all the way from, you know, outside the whole you know, the whole town has been locked down. There's no communication. No one on the outside really knows what's going on. And, you know, his dad comes in, gets him and they're trying to get out. They're hiding under a bridge. And the dad's like, he knows they're about to be found, that someone saw them sort of ducking around there. So he knows that these soldiers are going to keep coming until they find somebody. And so he says to the little boy, like, you stay here until I come back for you. And I promise I'll come back for you. And then he walks out and he doesn't come back and he dies. And then, you know, the next night, Myungi's little brother again runs off into the woods trying to get home to his mom. And Myungi and Hitei are like looking for him. And, you know, Hitei sort of goes off to try and find him alone down a certain way that looks more dangerous. And he gets arrested. And it's very scary. He nearly gets shot in the head. But one soldier, kind of just who's got some humanness in him you know, goes out of his way to try and save him. And Hitei just gets arrested and taken off. And Myongi follows um, her little brother. And again, they're hiding. And she knows that they can't run off and get away. So she tells him to run on the count of three. She says that she promises that she will, you know, come find him afterwards, that it'll be okay, that she never breaks her promises. And then she sends him running and she stands out in front of the soldiers with her arms up. So the soldiers, again, you know, they grab her and take her and you know, they're going to shoot and run after her brother. So she's freaking out. One of them, like, you know, this kind of nice soldier, not not a nice soldier, but, you know, this very lost young boy soldier that I'll talk about in a minute. Um, you know, he he's like, I'll go get the boy. And you know he's doing this to save the kid's life. And he runs after him and he shoots the air and he tells, you know, Mongi's little brother to run. And it's awful because I just kept thinking, this little boy, how could you survive that intact? Your dad says, he, you know, he promises He's coming for you and then he dies and then your sister promises she's coming for you and then she dies. 
And this is the point in the drama where I was like, Myungin's little brother must be, you know, this this man who's clearly sleeping rough and, you know, like, I just was so sure that that, that character we kept seeing, who's this just ruined old man, I was so sure it was going to be her little brother because I just couldn't understand how, how a little boy could emotionally survive that. I thought it was, you know, yes, seeing them die is, you know, beyond what anyone could stand, but both of them saying this promise and then it not being true, how could you ever trust anyone or anything ever again? It was really sad. So that was one thing that made me unbelievably sad, but, you know, it felt true to life. <laughs> Stuff doesn't always work out the way that you want it to, uh, in this case, in an extreme way. So Myongi's death again. Oh my gosh. And I feel like this is another like moment of the drama, I think kind of sensitively portraying things that happened, you know, for instance, Myongi you realize it's going to be her who dies because, you know, the only, you know, it's a woman um, or, you know, maybe the subs just said that. I don't know, but it wasn't Suron because we see her in the future. So we know she survives. So you, at this point, I was kind of like, I think that it's Myungi who has died. So I wasn't like shocked. She jumps in front of the gun that's aimed for her little brother and she gets shot in the stomach. And then we see her a little bit later just lying on the forest floor in a ditch. Um, and the reason that I guess, you know, I don't want to say I liked it because that seems like a really weird thing to say. Um, but I feel like so often in, you know, kind of bombastic sort of over the top kind of things, even when they're dealing with true life things, you know, you can imagine that this moment, if you're going to, you know, have your main character murdered in your show, that she would have this, you know, loud, huge death scene in front of, you know, for instance, Hite. Like you think that, and I've seen this so many times, you know, Hite would be there, he would see her get shot, he'd be screaming, he'd be crying, you know, it'd be really like romantic in a tragic way as she dies in his arms. But I felt like this show really sidestepped anything that could be even remotely connected to being slightly cheesy or drama-ish and I don't mean that as in you know bad k-dramas are bad obviously <laughs> but you know what I mean like like a story and not like something that could really happen I felt like they leaned into the reality in this moment in a way that I think personally made Myungi's death even more powerful than it already would have been no matter how she died because she's a main character that we've grown to love um I just thought it was so powerful and it hurt so much to see like she's lying there, you know, bleeding out in this ditch. And then, you know, this kind of young, scared, lost soldier is told to go down there and make sure that she's got nothing in her pockets to ever identify her because, you know, she looks dead. So he goes down there and he searches in her pockets and, you know, he's already found on the ground because her little brother dropped it, the, the silver pocket watch. And then he finds this prayer that, you know, because her and Myungi, uh, Myungi, sorry, and Hite were getting married that day, uh, which again, very beautiful and very sad. This is basically their wedding day. All this shit goes down. 
And so there's a little prayer, which is this like secret message she's written to Hite that never gets read out loud. And I have to say, as soon as that happened, I was like, she's going to die because she never read the thing. Very sad. Um, but it's horrific. You know, he's there and she's still alive. And she just says to him, like, to, you know, this soldier boy is like, you did is my brother alive? And the soldier nods really like slowly. And then she sort of closes her eyes and you think maybe she's dead. And then he, you know, he defies the orders of his superior and he puts the watch and the prayer in her hand, closes her fingers and puts her hand on her belly. And then he just has to walk away. He has to, because he's part of this fucking murder squad. And this is, you know, it's his government who's ordered him to be here and he is choosing to be as humane as he possibly can at all instances in this drama. But he's, you know, he's part of the bad group. It's so awful. I felt, yeah, anyway. And so Myungi's death scene is her at night in a forest, lying on the ground all by herself, staring up through the trees. And she says something like, you know, I can see the stars. And then she dies. And to make it like really hit home, she, no one finds her. And this is what really kills me. Like, you know, there's hope. The people that loved her would have had hope, you know. The next scene we see is Hite. You know, clearly the uprising's done. Everything's, you know, you know this, this horrible general guy who caused the martial law and did all this shit becomes president, you know. Um, and then what happens in history is for the next eight years, there's just more and more and more like pushes for democracy from students and from different groups, particularly around the Guangzhou, you know, the, the Guangzhou uprising, people are so outraged that something like this could have happened that eventually, you know, they get a democracy, but not for eight more years. Oh, it's very sad. And apparently like the information was so like, so censored that for instance, people in Seoul, didn't really know what had happened. Like I remember reading a book where this um, dude who, you know, lived through or whatever, and he was talking about, you know, he didn't really have any idea until he went overseas to America to study. And then like the press was, it was crazy over there. So like he actually found out what happened by leaving the country. So it's the only way to get freedom of information anyway. Um, but I think that whole, that idea of Hite not even knowing, he doesn't even know what happens to her if she's alive or dead, but there's got to be a point where you realize she must be gone. But we see him, you know, he's walking around town, Guangzhou, he's got missing pictures of her and he's, you know, handing them out and he just looks fucked. And he walks into like a little, you know, restaurant place and the Arjuma's there and she takes, you know, the picture and he sees on the screen and this is the part which I just started bawling like and you know I didn't during Myungi's death scene even though it is the most heartbreaking thing I ever saw like I was just like no no like I can do this without crying and then this scene was what made me just like boil over I got sobbed for the rest of the drama but Hite looks up and on screen it's um it's actually showing the university song competition, you know, and it's clearly real footage from the real one. And it's this, you know, band kind of singing and he just looks up and then he sits down and he just starts crying. And it's like, I felt like it was this combination of, you know, there might still be hope for Myungi at this point, And maybe, maybe he thinks there would be, but realistically, you know, she's probably dead. We know she is. And he, 
he must think that she's probably dead. But on top of that, like looking at that competition, you know, that's everything that he wanted. That was what was driving him and his choices. And that was the kind of person that he used to be. He used to be the kind of boy that cared deeply about a university song competition. And now he's a young man whose wife is gone and he doesn't know where or what happened to her. I could not stop crying. Like I cried so much I got a headache. It was so intense. I nearly said intense. Oh no. <laughs> it was so sad. Oh my gosh. I feel like anyone who's listening to this who who has watched the drama obviously understands my pain. I understand your pain too. It was very hard to watch. Um, okay, so another thing I'm going to talk about, which made, oh, just made me sob and sob. So yeah, I've talked about, so there's this little kind of, you know, this lost boy soldier. I didn't really love his storyline at the beginning. You know, he's Hite's friend. We see him in army and we see that he's just getting treated like an absolute piece of shit. No matter what he does, he's just getting like ground down by these really scary, like power maniacs, sort of like superiors. And it's really fucked, to be honest. It's really awful and really scary. And, you know, he ends up being shipped off to Guangzhou and given a fucking machine gun looking thing and told to kill people. And he keeps kind of not wanting to and trying not to and then feeling guilty because he's not because, you know, he nearly gets his friend killed and his friend has to kill someone and his friend's like, you know, you don't do it means I have to do it. Like, that's not a kind thing that you're doing. And it's just awful. It's like one of those moments where you're watching someone, he didn't do anything wrong, but he's just getting sucked deeper and deeper in and it... At first, I, like, I didn't love seeing, I didn't love his storyline at first because I just didn't enjoy seeing all the abuse at the military base. But I understand why that storyline was so important because I think that you really needed to have eyes from the inside of the soldiers to see, you know, like obviously there's some really scary hardened killers that were shown, but also the idea that some of these men who did these truly awful things are, again, people swept up on the tide of something bigger and worse than they can possibly control. And maybe there's bad choices in there, but maybe they're like this little lost soldier boy who's also doing his best to save who he can. And he thinks that him being there, his presence there among these other dudes is potentially making the smallest of differences. So I don't know. I don't know what it was really like, um, but it was really sad. And the bit that made me cry so much is when you realize who that, you know, the guy from the future, the really old ruined guy, he's not that old, but you know, the ruined guy, you realize who he is. And I think when you realize who he is, it's just, oh, I just like, I just burst out crying. <laughs> it was too much for me. I don't know why. I think it was just the idea of, yeah, how could you live a good life after doing all that? Like, he was so young and yet, you know, there's no other choice after that except, like, his clear downward spiral. And then even when he's faced with Hite again in the future, like, he can't talk to him. He can't, he can't say anything, you know? There's no comfort and there's no forgiveness and it's just too much so yeah that was really really hard <laughs> um 
And then, of course, the last really intensely, awfully sad bit for me. Um, I feel like I'm just going through all this stuff as like a kind of therapy because it was so like I still feel like really unbalanced because I just cried so much and I was so upset and I still like now just talking about it again I feel so upset so I do feel like I'm using you guys listening to my podcast as a kind of um kind of fucking therapy for my brain to try and help me process <laughs> this really sad thing I watched so I don't know maybe it's just making you sad to listen to it all again but I hope it's helpful too for you if you are sharing my pain right now so of course the last like uh, intensely sad bit is you know we catch up with Huang Hite in the future and, you know, you see him doing well, you realize that he's like the head of like an emergency medical department, which is, of course, means, you know, he really got over and there's a whole thing about that, him getting over, you know, his traumas and stuff. And, you know, he's rejoined the world. He is interacting with people. He's cheerful. He's outgoing. He's living a life, you know, and he's doing his part to, I don't know, <laughs> bring something good into the world. Um, and we see him, you know, helping a young doctor who feels really guilty because he tried to help someone and couldn't save them. And he really like, you know, he's being a good mentor. He's being a good person. And we see he has to go meet some people he hasn't seen in a long time. And he, he walks out of his hospital and there's this big like protest banner on the street. And it's basically saying, you know, the, the Gwangju uprising was because there was like North Korean spies there. And this is interesting because because information was so censored after, you know, this whole thing happened, there's still now ongoing inquiries into the government's role in Guangzhou and the massacre that occurred there and into how many people died and into, you know, what really happened. And apparently soldiers have come forward to like try and give eyewitness accounts. And, you know, I think one even said something like, you know, there were helicopters firing on civilians and just crazy shit. Um, but, you know, they're still, they're still trying to charge people who are responsible because at the time, obviously they're untouchable, they're part of government, but that's no longer the case. So like, you know, once this, um, the guy in charge or you know, he becomes president after this, the military guy whose name <laughs> I don't remember. Um, but yeah, he got, he got investigated as responsible for this and sentenced to death. But in the end, you know, it was overturned. Um, so it's, yeah, it's all really crazy. Um, and this is a true thing that happens apparently now it's, or like for a long time, maybe I read that it's, it's like a, <sighs> what, like a line in politics, you know, very far right conservatives often believe that there really was North Korean spies and that the government didn't do anything wrong. And then, of course, you have like left leaning kind of progressives talking about, you know, wanting, wanting justice and wanting this to be properly investigated and wanting the country's government to acknowledge you know, that the government was really behind this attack on civilians. Uh, so, yeah, very scary stuff. Um, but that's, you know, that's just he sees this kind of protest banner that obviously really hits Hite hard in the future because, you know, he was there. He knows what happened. And then there's still people, you know, who weren't even there, you know, just going on about it. But anyway. So the sad thing is that, of course, he goes and he, he sees Myungi's little brother who's a priest now and seemed okay but you know I don't know how he was okay the poor little boy um presumably he wasn't for a long time 
Um, and he finds Hite finds out that they've found Myongi's body and he gets given, you know, he goes to the police station and he gets given her stuff. And he goes home to his like super flash but very sparse kind of apartment where he clearly lives alone and he you know he reads out this this wedding prayer and the wedding prayer is basically saying if something happens to either of them and I guess you know that's fair enough they're living in tumultuous times that Myungi hopes the person who's left behind will live you know not just grieve forever but live um and you know that obviously hits Hite extremely hard because he hasn't and he takes off his watch and you see all this scar like this scar on his wrist and again this is where I start just like bawling again and then the next scene is you know Hite is a young man again and we see him just walking into the ocean trying to drown himself and he gets washed back up onto shore and you know wakes up and just starts crying and it's just oh it's too much really hurt my heart so badly really really just made me sob so much I literally had a headache all night and the next day (laughs) I feel like I've only just got over my headache and now I'm recording this and it's gonna come back so sad it really is just so so sad and then you know I think the drama really tries to end on this kind of uplifting note and you know Hite, Hite's whole thing with Myongi was always he'll take the brunt of the bad things. He'll protect her from the most painful things. And obviously the fact that he keeps saying this and then she disappears and he never knows what happens to her is very hard for him because, you know, they were promises that he made her and he feels like he didn't deliver. But in the end, you know, once he reads her wedding prayer, he kind of realizes that in a way he did, he was the one who went through the worst hell like he hopes that Myongi has gone somewhere better and isn't in pain any longer but he spent 41 years in complete agony because you know his wife is gone um so you know it kind of ends on this uplifting note of maybe Hite now after 41 years now that Myongi has returned and they can bury her that maybe he can you know live again and maybe be happy um you hope these cool sunglasses <laughs> swaggering off down in the graveyard that he was. Oh, okay. I think that's it. This was really, 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 really long and I'm done. I'm done. I'm so sad again. I feel really sad. Oh, yeah, this one really, like, I feel like this is one of the saddest dramas I've ever seen. But I do, I have to say, like, considering... It's not one of the saddest. It's one of the saddest. It's not the saddest. Oh my God, Mr. Sunshine made me cry for a week. Um, but Youth of May is a really, truly beautiful drama. I think it really, I think it's really beautiful, but it's also so awful. But I think it felt like the right ending for this show. I feel like anything twee or kind of overly happy, would that have really hit home to me in the same way that this does what people maybe have been through you know like I think I think this this was the right ending even though sort of hated it I thought it was brilliantly done and executed and it's a really truly beautiful show Uh, everyone was amazing in it too I have to say all right I am I'm gonna go that's it that's enough huge waffle that's all I'm gonna say on youth of may um 
which is a 2021 12-episode Mellow Romance Historical. Thanks for listening to my sad waffle. I'm going to go and cry in a corner now. brings me to the very end of this week's episode and it was a it was a bit long wasn't it (laughs) oops um I really hope you enjoyed listening this week and I don't know if you saw that drama you might feel a bit sad I do um but otherwise I hope you're good um this is it for me for this week uh I'll be back next week talking about another drama um a bit more of a silly one next week uh which is kind of nice Um, And this is the part of the show where I say an enormous thank you to all those lovely people who have decided to support the show on Patreon. Um, Thank you guys so very much. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. Um, So until next week, this is Lee Evie. Thank you so much for listening to my weird show over and out.